Welcome into Loserville, folks. It's Philip Kingston. I am here with uh, a guest that is super obvious, and I actually can't believe we haven't had him on before. It is District 14 City Council Representative um, Paul Ridley. Say hello, Paul. Good morning. No, I said say hello. No, just don't, don't do that. Um, <laughs> Uh, Paul Ridley is a uh, retired lawyer, still licensed, um, a licensed architect, um, served the city in a number of capacities prior to council, including on the Landmark Commission and on the Plan Commission. And the Plan Commission, as uh, frequent listeners will remember, is what Dallas calls the Planning and Zoning Board, uh, because we can we never give things the right name. Um, and so, as you might imagine, um, being a lawyer and an architect on a planning and zoning body is uh, is a superior background to have. And I would love to have claimed to have discovered Paul, but in fact, all good things come from Angela Hunt. Isn't that right? I would agree with that statement. Yeah. And people used to, you know, when I was running the first time, people would say things like, uh, oh, you're just Angela Hunt in pants. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm like, is this is this meant to be an insult? I, you, I feel didn't take like, offense of that, I think. I really didn't. I thought if I could just be like half as good, I'd be okay, you know? So anyway, welcome, Paul. Um, the... Uh, this show is Dallas's only uh, local politics podcast. Uh, a, a little housekeeping, folks. Sorry for the continued delays in getting things out. It has to do with my schedule and an announcement about politics for myself that I'll be making pretty soon. In fact, maybe by the time we publish this, you'll already know what it is. Uh, and it's something that Paul and his wife, Joan, have very kindly agreed to help me out with. So... Um, Paul, there is a lot of stuff brewing at City Hall right now after what I would term a period of, of relative quiet during the beginning of your term. You were elected June 5th? That's that right? right. Yes, okay. that was the runoff date. Okay. Um, just because it's fun to remember, what was the margin of victory? <laughs> uh, I came in with 61% uh, to my opponent at 39%. The only other time I've seen an incumbent fail to break 40% was a guy named D. Margo, who was the last mayor of El Paso before the current one. And um, Mayor Margo was a genius at angering people. He, he, was, he was really an artisan. So I, I don't, I, he's kind of a historic low, but that one's, a 20 point margin is pretty solid. Well, of course, you never know how it's going to turn out before the vote tally, but uh, it was um, a um, fun election, a fun campaign, and uh, it uh, I owe my success, I think, to a good ground game, getting the volunteers out, um, knocking on doors myself. I knocked on over a thousand doors during the campaign and getting to meet people and uh, letting them know what I stood for. Well, I think that um, obviously the listeners are going to get a sense for your personality, which I think is very deliberate and thoughtful. But uh, I really was impressed with how hard you worked personally on the campaign. You you obviously keep yourself in good shape so you can handle the walking, but it was a lot, right? Yeah, it was. Um, it was a good way to stay in shape. The uh, the thing I've always enjoyed is the is trying to walk Swiss Avenue. Did you enjoy the uh, incredibly long distances between houses? <laughs> yeah, that uh, you could rate neighborhoods on um, the density of voters uh, in terms of lot size, and Swiss was one of the more challenging because of the long distance between individual homes. This is actually what turned me into an urbanist. Is I got really tired of the distance between voters' doors. If we could, <laughs> if we could move them all closer together, it'd be a lot better for me, I think. <laughs> yes, perhaps so. <laughs> um, so, on council right now, people have started to 
maybe this has been happening behind the scenes and I just didn't know about it. When you're not on council, you don't hear everything that goes on. But it seemed to me that certainly during the summer and the early part of fall, there were very few sort of policy initiatives that I think people were pushing forward. Now, maybe they were quietly working on them or whatever, but now it seems that we have uh, short-term rentals headed toward council. I'm hopeful that that's going to dislodge the the kind of barriers to talking about garage apartments and some other um, zoning land use type things. Um, we had an interesting debate on the ethics code and potential amendments to that um, this last week. Um, interesting is wrong, sort of annoying in my opinion, but you can, you can have your own. Um, but D14 always has its own agenda. So where do you want to start? Well, the uh, first of all, we were very busy in August and September working on the budgets. Uh, we had a record budget this year of $4.3 billion that included over $300 million in federal funds through the ARPA legislation to recover from the COVID pandemic. And that gave us an opportunity to put money in some places that um, really needed some additional funding. But some of the things that I'm proudest about achieving with regard to the budget discussions were obtaining the uh, dedicated inspector for uh, code in historic districts. I had heard many comments from residents uh, in historic districts and footnote, District 14 has more historic districts than any other district in the city. Including the first one. Yes, Swiss Avenue. And the second one. And Munker Place. <laughs> You're right, uh, which is where I live. And uh, people complained that code inspectors would come out and they wouldn't know anything about that particular district's historic district ordinance. And so they just weren't very effective at enforcing those ordinances. And so it was clear to me that we needed someone who was dedicated in code enforcement to um, uh, inspecting and in code enforcement in the historic districts. And so I got the city manager to agree to do that. We were also hiring uh, 31 new code inspectors to keep up with uh, blight conditions in different neighborhoods around the city. And so I thought it was uh, a win to get one of those dedicated to the historic districts. Another initiative of mine was to uh, get rid of the proposed fee for certificates of authenticity, which are the appropriateness, uh, appropriateness. Yes. Um, for historic districts, you have to obtain that review by city staff or in many cases by the Landmark Commission if you are making uh, significant changes to your historic building right down to the paint color and sometimes the landscaping. And the staff was proposing to raise $30,000 in additional tax money by charging a $100 fee for each CA. And I was very concerned that this would discourage people from going through the process of obtaining city review for changes to their buildings. We already have a problem with some people uh, not wanting to submit to that review process, even though it's currently free and will remain free because of my stand on this during the budget issues. And it's so important to maintaining the fabric of our historic districts, their desirability as neighborhoods, that we adhere to enforce the provisions of each individual historic district's ordinance. And so that's going to be a way to do that. Um, I also was an advocate for various um, environmental initiatives, principally increasing the allocation for solar panel um, power sources on city buildings and uh, collaborated on allocating an additional million dollars for that purpose. You know, you're vice chair of that committee, correct? That's right. What's the name of the committee? They they, they keep changing the names of these committees. It's they, Environment and, and Sustainability. That one actually makes more sense than some of the new names. I, I like that one. <laughs> um, so, the, you know, the, the solar stuff for the city is really has been a big missed opportunity because you're going to allocate a million dollars, but it's going to wind up leveraging far more than a million dollars worth of solar panels because of the state's program that that provides 
basically no cost financing mm-hmm. to the city. I, I was looking out my office window the other day at the top of City Hall and the top of the K. Bailey Hutchison Convention Center and noticing that the city had approximately two acres of roof space that it could be generating solar on that it, that it isn't. And I thought, you know, that actually, if we anticipate, if we want other people to do that, and there is a private program of subsidized financing called PACE for private uh, buildings, the city needs to kind of model that behavior. Yeah, it needs to be the example. Uh, I agree with you. Um, the convention center... Uh, is going through planning stages for a significant uh, renovation or replacement project. And that's something that I just had an additional staff briefing on yesterday. It, um, it follows upon some state legislation that was designed to be usable by basically two cities in the whole state of Texas, Fort Worth and, and Dallas. And it allows... Is that the Briner? Um, well, actually, this one is... There is the Briner Act, uh, but this is a different piece of legislation that allows a city to apply to the state to um, redirect the hotel occupancy tax and the um, state sales tax to significant projects like a new convention center or improvements to Fair Park. And uh, it's at no cost to the local municipality because the money all comes out of taxes that would otherwise go to the state. Yeah, but in the last year before the pandemic, the K. Bailey Hutchison Convention Center lost the city about $75 million. So I'm very skeptical that putting more money into... A, a depreciating asset loss center is a really good investment for the city. I know that they've leveraged this by promising a small fraction of the money to Fair Park, but you know, at $400 million in, in tax money plus whatever else they're talking about in bond funding, because the, the, the advocates for this are talking about a two to $3 billion total project, mm-hmm. is that a good idea? Well, actually, I think it is. And um, uh, let me talk about your your points. Um, The convention center currently is in a very dilapidated condition. It is outmoded. It doesn't have enough meeting room space. I've been in several other more up-to-date convention centers in other cities, uh, most recently in Houston, when I attended the uh, Texas League of Cities convention there in uh, September. And it was a very um, usable facility, and it uh, really uh, cast a shadow over the K. Bailey Hutchison Convention Center in Dallas. It has been added onto over the years since it was first constructed uh, in 1957. And the uh, staff that uh, manages the convention center are constantly scavenging parts, plumbing fixtures, and other um, uh, hardware from one part of the convention center to another part just to keep things running. Um, They incurred a huge expense as a result of a water pipe leak that damaged a large part of the uh, one of the convention meeting halls, uh, just as they were about to open a, a meeting uh, space for a convention. And um, it, I think, may be time to replace the whole structure. Well, okay, except what's the goal? Like, it, it, I, I know that if you talk to these booster type people, what I always call the Chamber of Commerce types, they say that these conventions stimulate, uh, have economic impact, which economic impact, when those two words go together, I just hear bullshit. Like that, that's a, that's a direct translation in my mind. I just don't see the economic benefit to Dallas from chasing these sort of, I think it's kind of a dinosaur industry. I mean, there are fewer and fewer conventions and trade shows. Um, and we're really, we're at best a third tier choice for people who, who want to do these kinds of meetings. I, I don't know why we wouldn't utilize that public property for a different public's purpose and say, you know, if, if you're a convention and, and, and 
trade show type industry, you already have Vegas and San Antonio and San Francisco and New Orleans. And even though I like Dallas better than those cities and choose to live here, it's a different kind of city in my mind. Well, it is. uh, But I think Dallas still has great potential as a convention city because of DFW airports. We're right in the middle of the country. We're equally accessible from the East Coast and the West Coast. And a lot of trade associations and businesses like to hold their annual conventions in a central location. And Dallas really is the most accessible city in the center of the country. And so I think it's something that we can build on that accessibility, uh, both for state uh, meetings, statewide meetings, as well as nationwide meetings. And uh, we're just being handicapped by an inadequate convention center. And I think that's why um, some businesses no longer want to hold conventions in Dallas uh, because of the conditions at our convention center. Uh, I think if we did have an improved facility, uh, we would attract a lot more conventions. And I don't think the convention business is dead. I really think, particularly after we emerge from the epidemic, from the pandemic, that people are going to be anxious to travel again, to meet people in other parts of the country at these kinds of trade shows and conventions that we have hosted uh, forever at uh, our convention center and other convention centers. So I think it's, if it's promoted properly and we have good facilities, the people will come. Will it be of economic benefit to the city? I think it will. There is a real shortage of hotel rooms uh, that um, service uh, a convention center in Dallas. And I think that if we built this new facility, we would not only improve business at the Omni, which would continue to be connected to the convention center, uh, but also for the construction of additional hotels downtown to serve the convention center and hopefully additional businesses. One thing that really detracts from the convention center is the fact that it's in a, an area of downtown that's lifeless. There is no street activity. People are put off by the um, building extending over the streets, creating a very dark, forbidding space uh, near the dark rail station there. It's just not an inviting location. And uh, with a new facility, I think we would attract new street-level businesses that would integrate the convention center into downtown and make it a real asset for other businesses. One little appreciated uh, feature of the K. Bailey Hutchison Convention Center is that it is the most comfortable outdoor space during the dead of summer in Dallas. That uh, passageway on Lamar under the convention center Uh, all of the air conditioning from the convention center leaks out and air conditions the entire street and the dark station. And it's, it's absolutely fabulous. If you, if you're, if you're riding your bicycle, it's a very welcome respite. If you're going up and down Lamar, I'm not sure that that's super beneficial for our environment or our uh, city budget, but it's, it's yet another reason to put some solar panels on that thing. Well, and of course, um, until we decide what we're going to do with the convention center, it doesn't make sense to put solar panels on it if the building's going away or being modified significantly. Uh, There are four different alternative proposals for what to do with the convention center that are being considered. Do any of them involve arson? (laughs) Well, the nearest equivalent. I've got a fifth alternative. Uh, Many of them, uh, I think three of them, uh, the four, would involve demolition of most or all of the existing building. And although I'm reluctant to tear down a facility that may still have some existing lifespan, we have to also consider the functionality of that space and whether it can serve the purpose for which it was built. Well, I hope that in consideration of that, people will consult with the Council's Environment and Sustainability Committee about the relative merits of remodeling versus replacement, because the people who are advocating for replacement are people who, one, work in the facility and would like a nice new shiny facility, or two, own property near the facility and are very much hoping to profit from this investment of public funds, which 
it's the same people as always who are at the public trough. It's Perot, it's Bilo, it's uh, now bon- Monty Bennett. Um, I mean, at least Jack Matthews makes a profit. <laughs> you know, I don't know. He doesn't sit on land and just and just keep it fallow. I think that's part of the problem with the walkability of that area is you've got land that has been more or less sat on by people who are, I, I would say, speculating. Well, the land around the convention center is very underutilized, as you say. Uh, it's dominated by parking lots and uh, a lack of businesses really anywhere near the convention center other than the Omni Hotel. I uh, Let's stay in downtown just for a second because I work down there, um, and so I see this with my own eyes. I'm in Comerica, and nominally we're at like 70% capacity, um, like a 30% vacancy rate, which is not terrible for tall office. It's not great. But the truth is that on a day-to-day basis, maybe 20 to 25% of the workers who used to be in downtown five days a week are still there. And so you know that whatever the leases say, that's an indication of demand. And I have a, a very great fear about the economic future of downtown because I'm not certain that there is going to be a rebound in the demand for downtown office space. Do you you have concerns about downtown's viability and do you have plans? Uh, I have no concerns about downtown. I'm very bullish on downtown. Uh, You're correct. A lot of people have not returned to their office uh, in downtown as a result of um, being able to do much of their work virtually. I think that's uh, a trend that's in reversal and more people are coming back to work. I think more particularly after the first of the year will come back. But more importantly than just my opinion is the opinion of developers who are uh, talking once again about major office projects in downtown. And I've raised the question with them. Are you not concerned about the glutted sublease market and the lack of occupancy of office space in many of the existing buildings, and they're not. Uh, They have been receiving interest from potential tenants who may have special requirements such that they can't accommodate those requirements in existing buildings. They have to have space that's new, that um, their particular needs are planned into the building. And so uh, we've already seen Hunt Consolidated uh, getting zoning approval for a major office development, the North End Project, and um, just north of Woodall Rogers near the West End. I've also gotten um, expressions of interest from some other developers in an office park with uh, other uses, mixed uses, and the Lamar and Field Corridor on the west end of downtown. Uh, There's continuing interest in uptown, but uh, I think we're going to see uh, more development in the next 10 years of offices and other businesses in downtown. We still have large tracts of underdeveloped land in downtown. Uh, I think at one point I read that Dallas had the largest surface area of any downtown CBD that was devoted to parking lots. We can't afford that kind of land use. We really um, need to develop that property to a more productive use that's appropriate for our CBD. Well, I'll tell you, look up the tax value of the surface parking lots and you will find the reason why they are still there. They, uh, they're allowed to argue at the, at the uh, assessor's office that they should be valued on an income basis, which no other kind of property is allowed to argue. And uh, I mean, no, commercial property can argue this, residential cannot. And so essentially it shifts the burden onto residential. But those lots are down there at, at valued at like half a million dollars. Um, when you know that on a development basis, they're worth five to 12, depending on size, right? So it's, uh, it, to me, it's, it, it is, if the state would just give us the slightest bit of help on straightening out the imbalance in the way we, we raise property taxes, I think you would see immediate turnover in those lots. Once, once it became more expensive to hold them, 
I think they would they would get marketed fairly quickly. I'm I hope you're right about downtown, but I know that Brian Tower just went into foreclosure. Um, uh, Renaissance is in default. Um, I've heard that Thanksgiving is on the verge of default, um, and so I'm concerned about the existing. I, I would call it B office space. Um, and just, I don't know who's going to soak that up unless they're substantially redeveloped for like residential as we did with the other older office buildings in the nineties and two thousands. Well, and that has been a major transformation of downtown is, uh, the conversion of older B and C office space into residential. And that's been very successful. There are now 10,000 people living downtown when uh, 20 years ago there were 200 in one building. And so that's brought uh, amazing, um, uh, lively uh, sidewalks and streets downtown. You go down there on the weekends and people are out pushing their baby strollers, walking their dogs. It's a real community now. Uh, So there may be potential for conversion of some of the older office buildings that uh, type A tenants are no longer interested in converting those to residential, I think there will be a continuing market for additional residential space downtown. And new buildings aren't being built for residential downtown uh, to any great extent. So that that would not be a disappointment to see that happen. Uh, but there is still... I'd love to live in Thanksgiving. Well, <laughs> I think the Tower Club would be a perfect place for me to live. <laughs> well, that's a great place. It's also next to... Uh, Thanksgiving Square, uh, which is also planning some improvements to make it more accessible and um, more open to the uh, added pedestrian traffic that um, uh, travels nearby. That's an amazing project because the, the original design, you know, you hate to say this about what is kind of a gem for Dallas in a lot of ways as a park space, but also as kind of a, a value statement about um, uh, internationalism and I don't know if we use that word anymore, but the, uh, the idea that people should come together around the principle of Thanksgiving, you know, it's a lovely sentiment, but the original design, it just sucks. I mean, it, there's no other way to say it. it is a, it's, a, it's a poor urban form and trying to fix something like that that's historic without completely destroying the design is a real challenge and i'm amazed at the proposed drawings i've seen yes they would uh, open it up make it more visible more accessible to pedestrians and uh, you know it's been a very underutilized park unfortunately uh, but it's a um uh, a park that is not intended to be a real active park like Clyde Warren Park. Um, it's intended to be contemplative and peaceful. And they want to balance that uh, against having more people take advantage of its location in a very densely developed part of downtown. Well, I can tell you it is the most popular park among dogs of downtown and the least popular park among people who own dogs but apparently don't own poop bags. Well, they're working on that. Yeah. Um, okay, we get, you and I have another downtown project that you helped significantly with um, that needed a permit. And it, uh, a week ago, we got a permit on this project. The original permit was applied for in 2019. So anybody who reads the paper and certainly anyone who tries to do anything with property, even just to the extent of remodeling a house that you live in, uh, has been bedeviled by interactions with the city's planning and permitting processes. Where do you see that currently and what do you think the solution is? Well, it's a problem that's been around for several years. And uh, I remember having meetings as much as five years ago uh, that sought to address it, but nothing seemed to gain traction until just this year, really. And the city manager has really looked at the situation in depth. They have brought in new leadership. Uh, 
uh, that uh, I think has been given the mission of turning the ship around. Um, I think there was finally a realization, particularly amongst the economic development sector, that this was really hurting Dallas because developers were refusing to develop in Dallas because it took so long to get uh, entitlements approved and building permits approved. Building permits should be an almost ministerial task. They shouldn't take years, as was the case in your recent instance. And they shouldn't take intervention by a city councilman to push them through. Um, so I was glad that I could help in that instance. Um, there were... Several... Yeah, it's really not supposed to be your job, right? No, it's not. Um, and it, it should be a well-oiled system that just proceeds um, uh, in a prompt fashion and in a reasonable fashion. We, of course, have to ensure that our buildings are built according to the applicable building code. That's important for life safety and other reasons. Um, but the protracted review and delay in reviewing of drawings uh, is just counterproductive. Uh, we've looked at outsourcing to consultants, architects, and engineering firms, the review of uh, drawings that are submitted for a building permit, and that will be part of this new system. But uh, we're also uh, seeking to reform the telephone uh, system so that people who call with questions get uh, to an operator, to uh, someone who can actually give them substantive responses in a quick fashion. We had a very high percentage of hangups because they were kept on hold so long. My average is about 20 minutes when I call. Well, that should be improving. Uh, I've seen some statistics that show that the waiting time is significantly reduced. It could probably still use some additional improvement, but they're hiring additional people to handle those calls. They've also been uh, changing to a new software system. Uh, the old system was no longer supported and uh, was slow and inefficient. And so they're replacing that with a new uh, program that will be better able to address the needs of patrons of the building permits department. I also have seen um, a couple of proposals to um, physically change the way that the city does permitting by getting rid of or remodeling the city's Oak Cliff Municipal Center where most permitting work happens. And I have always been of the opinion that that building is actually part of the problem. Um, it had a mold issue. Many of our uh, city workers who we want to be um, urban and modern and promoting growth in Dallas work in windowless offices in the basement. And it's, it's just not a nice place to be. Um, have you seen any of those proposals? Mike Hope showed me one where he would, he would build, basically build the city a new municipal center in Singing Hills. No, I haven't heard of any efforts to either remodel the existing space or to replace it. Uh, that may be something that we should look at in the future. Well, I'm submitting a zoning proposal that would include the city's Oak Cliff Municipal Center and provide significant extra density in that neighborhood, although probably not on Jefferson itself. But um, it could uh, catalyze maybe some uh, changes in the way that we treat. I, I just think, I don't know, every time I see workers not doing what you want them to do, then my first question is generally, well, is there something we did to them to make it that way? You know, because <laughs> I think people in general want to do a good job. I don't think that there's like a, a I don't think that government workers are inherently lazy or bad. In fact, I've, it's been my experience that they're kind of the opposite. Uh, they may be very um, uh, careful and I think that's appropriate, but I'm, my experience with staff was largely positive. I hope that's been your experience as well. Oh, absolutely. There are many dedicated civil servants who work for the city who are foregoing higher salaries in the private sector and perhaps better working conditions to give back to the city. And I'm very proud of their efforts. 
I would say that one of the ways that the city used to compete with private industry was with superior benefits and retirement. And I'm worried that we've allowed those uh, advantages to erode in some ways. I, it, in my, I, it's something I encourage you to take a look at. I, the health insurance has improved substantially. The last year or so I was on council, we actually had usable health insurance, which was kind of nice. Um, but the, uh, the benefits that are going to accrue to people who serve their full time at the city in, in retirement are not as good as they used to be. And we, we did do a reduction of those in order to improve the health of the civilian pension system. I would love to see that reversed at some point. I know there are unlimited demands on our money, but if we could ever figure out a way to, um, uh, recapitalize the civilian pension system, I think that that would give us a, an extra advantage when we're doing hiring and retention. Well, the issue there is whether we should have a defined benefit system or a defined contribution system. And uh, just like the rest of the world, particularly in the private sector, there are um, um, initiatives to transition to a defined contribution 401k system. And the city has both 401k and Roth 401k plans. And uh, that's an opportunity for employees to chart their own course, to um, invest those funds that they contribute from their paychecks into investments that they're most comfortable with and manage their own investments in that fashion. The private sector has largely done that. And uh, I think we're going to see that increasingly in the public sector as well. Man, I hope we keep defined benefit around um, on, a, in an, on an efficiency basis. It just, it swamps private management. You know, it, 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 you have a few great managers managing a large pool of assets as opposed to 12,000 individual employees having to spend their time figuring out how to manage these assets. I just, I think just on a systems basis, defined benefit can be substantially better than defined contribution. Well, it comes at a cost though. As you know, there are fees charged for participants in um, a defined benefit plan uh, that can sometimes be very high. And there also is the risk of mismanagement of those assets, as we saw with the police and fire pension fund. And so uh, this is a means of taking it uh, out of the hands of a paternalistic system and putting it in the hands of the individual employees who want to save money for their futures. Okay. We'll cut this part out before the AFL-CIO hears what you said. <laughs> um, the... I, I think that the um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, and maybe you've had some thoughts on this, given your background in land use, and you know that's that's been that's been part of the hallmark of District 14 leadership, both at the council level and at the plan commission level, is really sort of superior um, experience and, and thinking in terms of land use, just because we're faced with so many more of those decisions than other districts. Although thankfully it's starting to spread out. Um, other districts are getting more development going on. The city's, um, comprehensive plan, which is called forward Dallas with a, a small F and a large D and no space in between, which I always throws me for a loop. Um, is almost 20 years old. It's getting close. Um, let me think. That was 03, I think, is when we passed that. So, yeah, it is getting close. And typically, I think, I don't know, I think most cities that operate from a comprehensive plan try to update it more frequently or maybe do smaller updates more frequently. But it, in, in my mind, it's clearly past time to, to examine that document. Have you put thought into that? And do you have uh, goals and desires for the new comprehensive plan? Well, you're right. Uh, the current Forward Dallas plan is seriously updated. Uh, it needs to be updated and rethought. One of the shortcomings of the original plan was that it didn't 
contain a land use plan. It really was very conceptual in that regard. And that's something that is the intent of the Planning and Urban Design Department to include that element in the new updated plan. They're already in the process of engaging with the community through stakeholder meetings that are being held virtually. I've attended one of those so far, and I know that they're planning more in January, so that citizens will have an opportunity to engage in the process and tell the city what they would like to see in such a plan. And that's the way it should be. So um, that's uh, my objective, is to get as much citizen input as possible so that this really is a plan that is reflective of the needs and aspirations of Dallas residents, and also to have a land use component built into the plan so that it provides an overall guidance. Having served on the plan commission for eight years, um, I frequently saw instances where there was no overall conception of what types of land uses should be in what areas of the city. And I think having this kind of well-thought-out guidance that's adopted by the people's representatives uh, would go a long way towards providing that necessary direction to the plan commission that uh, makes recommendations to the city council about rezoning cases. You campaigned in part on, and very strongly in part, on uh, improving the city's stock of affordable housing. How do you see the, the comprehensive plan encouraging or inter interacting with our efforts on affordable housing? And what do you see as promising or, or maybe missed opportunities currently with our approach to affordable housing? Well, one of the other uh, shortcomings of the current plan, which is really more the result of the advance of time, is that the city has created and adopted many other strategic plans, such as the Comprehensive Housing Policy, uh, which was adopted about four or five years ago. And what the Comprehensive Forward Dallas Plan does not do, it does not incorporate those other plans that the city has adopted since 2003 in a comprehensive and cohesive manner. And that's one of the major issues that we need to integrate into the comprehensive plan is our uh, uh, strategic housing policy. That is the document that first brought to the attention of policymakers in Dallas that we had a shortage of 20,000 living units for residents of Dallas. And that number, I'm sure, has only grown larger with uh, time. Um, so that's one of the things that I also am anxious to see and is proposed in the new comprehensive plan update that we incorporate such things as the strategic mobility plan for transportation, the comprehensive housing policy and other related uh, policies so that we have a coherent and coordinated plan for the future of Dallas. When do you anticipate the strategic mobility plan actually <laughs> approaching a committee or council? I've been waiting on that since 2018. Well, uh, I can't speak to when that will actually go for approval, but um, it's something that I'm anxious to see. It's something that we've needed for many years, and uh, I'll uh, certainly be pushing to get that approved. Uh, through the city council. But addressing your original issue of affordable housing, yes, that is a very important need for all districts in the city, including District 14. One of the things that uh, I'm very excited about is an initiative in that direction that will be teed up at our December 8th city council meeting, the last one of the year, on uh, uh, policy issues. And that's the Dallas Housing Opportunity Fund. This is an effort by the city to uh, increase the supply of affordable housing through private sector efforts. Uh, there is a company called LISC, which is a company that operates nationally and has offices in San Francisco and Washington and other cities, including Houston and San Antonio here in Texas. 
that is very experienced at obtaining private sector funding for affordable housing. This was a real crisis in San Francisco because of the high real estate prices there. Working class people couldn't afford to live anywhere near San Francisco. And so they raise funds uh, in conjunction with, in our case, um, the Real Estate Council. And they will be the local platform for LISC uh, that is experienced in real estate development, affordable housing, underwriting, and will be taking applications from private for-profit and not-for-profit developers who wish to develop affordable housing and they will be the clearinghouse for loans uh, to facilitate that kind of development at below market interest rates. Uh, they uh, are promising to raise $40 million from the private sector. $6 million in addition will be contributed to the loan fund by the city of Dallas in funds that were allocated several years ago um, in economic development and so that uh, will make it at least a $46 million pot. And they, uh, that, that $6 million from the city will be on a loan basis that will be paid back in proportion to the number of units. So a certain percentage of that loan fund has to be paid back to the city uh, with um, the uh, lapse of time. But uh, a portion of it will be um, waived uh, or forgiven with every 100 units of affordable housing that is built. And this uh, deal would require the Dallas Housing Opportunity Fund to develop 1,500 units by the end of 2031. They have to raise the $40 million by 2025 and then the next six years uh, actually building affordable units. So I think it's a great opportunity to bring a lot of new affordable housing to Dallas uh, without costing the taxpayers any additional money. How does that approach square with the city's existing efforts in the Dallas Housing Finance Corporation and the Public Facilities Corporation, which those two already have some overlapping responsibility? I'm, I'm, I'm sensing, so as an affordable housing developer, I'm sensing some lack of focus from the city of Dallas. This is like yet another um, affordable housing financing program. And the, the Public Finance Corp just got a quorum of its board, so it can actually have meetings now. Um, the No one at City Hall seems to understand what the application process is going to look like for PFC. Dallas Housing Finance Corp has issued no guidance about underwriting for its funds. And, and then we have this third effort, which I guess is in addition to the effort of MDHA to do permanent supportive housing for the homeless using private financing, which, again, you know, the, the problem with private financing is that it goes away. You, you raise it one time, even if you're very successful, it is not a sustainable solution in general. Uh, is do you see confusion in that approach, or is is this does this all fit together like a jigsaw puzzle, and I'm just not seeing it? Well, I'm not sure that it has to fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. I think it's worthwhile to have different people working on financing and constructing affordable housing. Uh, the more people that we have working on it, the better, because it's going to result in more housing. Um, I think it's uh, particularly important to have the resources of this Dallas Housing Opportunity Fund working on this effort because it would employ two organizations that are already up and running and very experienced in the affordable housing industry. And so while the Housing Finance Corporation may have some startup uh, delays, um, I think this uh, approach is a very constructive one that doesn't need to interfere with any of the existing city boards, but sim simply augment or supplement them. Um, I think it's uh, important that we explore all opportunities to fund affordable housing and particularly uh, take advantage 
of lending institutions' obligations under the Community Reinvestment Act, which requires them to make up for their loan redlining of the past by contributing money to build affordable housing in areas that are underrepresented in the housing uh, stock of our city. And so I just um, talked at length with Linda McMahon yesterday of Trek. Uh, she's the uh, CEO of Trek about how they will be working in conjunction with LISC to bring about affordable housing in Dallas. And I was very impressed with the um, breadth and uh, experience that she has uh, working for uh, one of the biggest banks in the country uh, and working on affordable housing initiatives. And I think she is the ideal person to lead that effort on behalf of Trek. Uh, to bring affordable housing opportunities to Dallas. Now, this is workforce housing. Uh, this is not an effort to build uh, supportive housing for the homeless. That's something that MDHA is tasked with and uh, very pleased with the initiative that the city is engaged in to contribute $25 million to the effort of the rapid rehousing uh, program that is also being um, uh, contributed to by private industry to the tune of $10 million. They've raised most of that now. Uh, and by uh, Dallas County, which is also putting in $25 million. The city's contribution is coming from federal ARPA funds. And so it's the first time that the city has really focused on a uh, plan that includes other um, jurisdictions in the Dallas area within Dallas County to really comprehensively address homelessness because homelessness knows no boundaries. It's very difficult for one municipality, even the size of Dallas, to tackle the problem by itself because people move from city to city. It's a transient population. And so this kind of coordinated regional program, I think, uh, is a great way to approach it and with the additional funds available to build affordable, uh, supportive housing and to provide wraparound services that are needed to make the uh, homeless, unsheltered population uh, productive citizens again, I think is a really constructive approach. The uh, full disclosure, I've already applied with MDHA to get an incredibly small grant that will allow us to house voucher holders in one of our buildings. So um, I'm, I'm, I am appreciative of, of multiple efforts. I'm just, I'm, I don't know, I've had some communications with the housing department this last week that didn't lead me to believe that there was a lot of strategy behind the approaches. And maybe that's fine, too. Well, the intent is that MDHA uh, provide that kind of coordination and leadership. They're really um, the on the supportive front. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, and they'll be working in coordination with the Office of Homeless Solutions at the city and the housing department uh, to bring about their, their objectives as they work with the other jurisdictions in Dallas County. I don't think that the list, listenership really cares if I make a little bit of money on affordable housing. <laughs> Just trying to make a little bit of money on affordable housing. Well, that's the idea, is to incentivize private uh, owners of housing, multifamily in particular, to accommodate um, people who cannot afford market rate rents uh, in Dallas. And that's the system that you mentioned, the voucher system uh, under Section 8, that many current apartment owners don't accept. And that's something that we need to incentivize them to accept those vouchers so that people who are in that program and have already met the income qualifications can find decent housing in Dallas. I'm a certified voucher landlord through the county's program. So I'm actively trying to get this done. You had another land use uh, win this week, I would say, um, with the city finally making some sort of move toward uh, regulating short-term rentals. Um, I, I like short-term rentals. I think a lot of people like short-term rentals, but I don't think anybody likes the sort of wild west of short-term rentals that we see in Dallas right now. How do you see that playing out? 
Well, we have had a tremendous increase in the number of short-term rentals in Dallas, and it uh, has resulted in a lot of incidents in neighborhoods, shooting incidents, um, incidents of parties that are out of control, uh, disturbing residents in single-family neighborhoods in particular. And so I've been receiving uh, a huge number of communications from my constituents about the need for some kind of regulation of short-term rentals. Uh, that can take two different paths uh, that are best coordinated. One is the zoning path, which is the uh, event that you referred to on Thursday. The City Plan Commission authorized a hearing to consider uh, making a definition of short-term rentals in the current Dallas zoning code, which doesn't currently exist. They're just ignored because they're a relatively new type of land use. And the code, because it doesn't regulate them, uh, currently doesn't address whether they are legal in single-family neighborhoods or not. Uh, we have a zoning code that prescribes particular permitted uses in different zoning districts. For example, in single-family neighborhoods, you can't build multifamily housing. You can only build or occupy single-family uh, housing. And there are different density categories of zoning districts for multifamily, townhouse, duplex, etc. And uh, the issue is that since the short-term rentals are really a lodging use, they're not a residential use, uh, people are not subletting the house, they're simply obtaining a license to use it over a weekend or perhaps a week. It's not a residential use and therefore the issue that the Plan Commission, through its Zoning Ordinance Advisory Committee, will be examining in the coming months is whether that is uh, a land use that should be permitted in our single-family neighborhoods. You know, the, this all stems from a memo that was written by the City Attorney's Office in about 2014 or 2015 that made the argument that since uh, short-term rentals were not defined under the development code that they therefore could not be regulated. And that's sort of a nutty position to take. And to be fair, the current city attorney did not write that memo, but he has stood firmly by it. And it is has always been my understanding that new uses that had not been contemplated by the code that was written originally in 1965 were to be matched with the category most closely approximating the use uh, that is being uh, undertaken in short-term rentals, for instance. Um, we do this all the time. Um, they did this with poker rooms. They've done this with every kind of new use. So they assign it to a category that it is most closely like, except for short-term rentals, which they have simply said, there is no category, therefore there is no regulation. And I think if you could go back to that one memo, we would understand that short-term rentals are lodging, which from the standpoint of hotel occupancy tax, which we charge them, on the city's website, it says short-term rentals are lodging and must pay hotel occupancy tax. Yet we then have the city attorney on the other hand saying, no, they're not lodging, they're nothing, and therefore they're completely unregulated. Um, and I, I just... I don't know. I think that that I think that a lot of the headache of this could have been solved if we had had a clear and um, correct application of the code six or seven years ago. We would have had this debate six or seven years ago instead of basically fighting a, in my opinion, wrong legal conclusion um, about how the code works. Do you see? I don't know. I, I see this being a lot of brain damage for an issue that would have been very simple to solve by simply recognizing that lodging uses are lodging uses. Well, the biggest uh, problem with that is that we have subjected our neighborhoods to the invasion of these disruptive lodging uses for the intervening six or seven years. Uh, sure, I would love to turn the clock back and have decided that issue differently six or seven years ago, 
And then what we are now starting is the discussion about how we should treat short-term rentals in our zoning code. And that's what Plan Commission is tasked with doing now. Well, to be to be very clear, what I'm saying is that the city attorney should have said in 2014 or 2015, uh, these aren't allowed in any of your single-family detached zoning codes because the zoning code is a code of enumerated uses, not a code of restrictions. And so if, if, an, if a use isn't specifically called out in a zoning code, it's simply not allowed. Um, that would have sparked the conversation we're, we're having today. And the thing is, I don't think that that memo has precedential value. I mean, I'm not aware legally of any um, uh, particular meaning of memos issued by the city attorney. There's not an attorney general type opinion process at the city. And I wonder if a new city attorney might simply look differently at it the way the way that a new city attorney looked differently at the Fair Park um, privatization process a few years ago and said, you know what, we made a mistake, we can fix it. Well, and that's what we're trying to do now is to fix that by making it clear in the zoning code that short-term rentals are lodging uses, not residential uses, and they're not appropriate in single-family neighborhoods. Now, the other avenue that we are exploring is to regulate them as a um, use and the effects that they have on neighborhoods that's not related to the zoning code. And that would be uh, the subject of um, discussion currently with the short-term rental task force that will be reporting their recommendations to the Quality of Life Committee at City Council uh, in probably February. I serve as a co-chair of that task force and I also serve on the Quality of Life Committee. Uh, we are discussing how to regulate some of the uh, deleterious effects of the short-term rentals, such as noise regulations, uh, having um, a local contact person so that if there is a disturbance, there is someone 24 hours a day who you can contact to address that situation, as many of these short-term rentals, in fact, the majority of them now, are owned by businesses. They're not mom-and-pop owner-occupied. That's a small fraction of the total number of short-term rentals currently in Dallas. And so it's become a business for many uh, people who buy up homes, in many cases paying over the market rate because they will have an income stream from them that skews the market in single family neighborhoods. It has the potential for raising everyone's property tax rates because the appraisal district will look at the uh, higher valuation for these businesses operating in single family homes. And so it can have many damaging effects on our neighborhoods. Uh, but the idea is that these regulations would apply irrespective of the zoning district that the short-term rental is in, so that they would apply in multifamily districts, uh, condominiums. We're also seeing a trend for condos and apartment uh, landlords renting out their units on a short-term basis. And I'm hearing complaints from other tenants in those kinds of buildings. Well, I think all that is, uh, I had the exactly the same complaints, but probably at a smaller volume when I was in your seat. Um, but I, so listeners up on the Twitter feed and the Facebook feed, I've got an explainer, um, on STRs at Philip T. Kingston. Um, one of the ideas that I put on that explainer, which is not my idea, this was invented in far more progressive cities than Dallas, is that because this short-term rental unit takes one unit out of the mix for long-term residents, including potentially for people who need affordable housing, there should be an impact fee for long-term housing assessed against short-term rental operations. And I think you can measure that fairly easily by looking at the city's average spend of public money to subsidize the creation of affordable housing and simply say, that's a one for one. Um, and that may wind up being too big a fee. You may have to back it down so that you don't completely get rid of short-term rentals everywhere. But I do think that that's 
I think it's undeniable that short-term rentals have a deleterious effect on the long-term housing stock. Well, they do because they, as you observe, take away a unit for a long-term or permanent resident in our neighborhoods. And that also has the effect of raising property values because it decreases the supply of housing throughout the city and uh, converts that housing to tourist accommodations. The issue of an impact fee assessed against short-term rentals is an interesting one. I think there are some legal issues that would need to be addressed in regard to that. Uh, For example, whether that impact fee would be an exaction that the city cannot charge unless it can be related to the particular impact that that one unit has on the area where it's constructed. And so I think there will be some legal complications of doing that. I agree, but we have the MVA, which the market value analysis, which should allow for a fairly granular um, calculation of the potential impact, which is always the the issue between impact fee versus illegal tax, right? Yes, uh, but the missing link will be how do we equate the impact of a particular short-term rental on the MVA, and that's going to take some study, I think. Yeah, for sure. I I wouldn't want to do it willy-nilly. I just think it's an impact of that use. Well, Paul, uh, we'll let you have the final word if you'd care to. uh, I know for a fact that the listeners appreciate um, people as important as city council people to local politics coming on the show. And I promise listeners we're going to have more soon. Well, thanks, Philip. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast, and uh, it's great to have an opportunity to kick around the issues with you. It was fun. Talk to you soon.